Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Open your Bibles, please, to John 13. We were talking about the newspaper this morning in Sunday school from the Bellingham Herald, but we get the... uh, the Ferndale uh, Giant Reader at, uh, or the Ferndale <laughs> Record Journal, I guess is what it's actually called, <laughs> at, uh, <laughs> at the church here so we can keep up with what's going on in Ferndale, but I'm thinking about canceling my subscription because I thought I lived in a nice house on a nice street. And then I get this thing from them showing this, this beautiful house that belongs to Jerry and Teresa Blankers in the uh, annual spring home improvement uh, section. I mean, it, 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 you look at it. He's got the two levels. He's got a pond. He's got the rock. You know, my goodness. He's got all this stuff inside. And, and I, I'm reading in here and seeing about the glories of his house, and I'm just flat getting envious. And I'm thinking, it's just not fair. There we go. Look at that. He's got it. Look at this, Mike. You wouldn't even need to go to Lake Padden to go fishing. He's got his own dock and his own little lake right there. Fish right off his front porch. Man, got a giant kitchen. I'm going to quit my subscription. I don't like that. <laughs> you know, it's okay if my house here isn't uh, all that. Because I got a house up there. And that's what we're going to learn about here in John 13 and 14 today from a passage that's familiar to you if you've known Christ any length of time. But there's a little part of it that we don't often associate together that's right before that passage. And I think we need to understand the impact of it. John 13, and we're going to start reading in verse 33. Little children... Jesus says to the disciples in the upper room, Little children, I shall be with you just a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, Where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now what's interesting is Jesus gives this great command about love, which we considered a couple of weeks ago. But all Peter can think of is, Lord, where are you going? That's verse 36. See, in verse 33, he says, I'm going to be going, and you can't come with me. And Peter says, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not go with you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus, you know, those of us that know the end of the story know, man, Peter, you really talked a good game, buddy. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow three times until you have denied me three times. Now, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know where I go, and you know the way. You need to understand Peter's anxiety if you're going to understand the impact of chapter 14. Jesus has been with these men for nearly three years. And they've been together, as far as we can tell, something like 24-7-365, as we like to say. They've been there the vast majority of the time. I'm sure there are times when the guys went to separate homes and you know, maybe uh, caught up on some family business or something and came back together. But the vast majority of their time has been together. And then there were times when, a couple times when Jesus sent them out to minister and then they came back and talked to Christ again. But their whole life has revolved around Jesus literally. Not just spiritually or figuratively as we would say our life revolves around Jesus. But they were physically Their lives were physically revolving around Christ. They've been learning what real godliness is about. They learned truth from him that they never learned from going to the synagogue or to the temple. They've watched him do miracles of every possible shape and size. They've been enabled by him to do miracles. If you came here today and I said, Chuck... I'm going to give you the blessing, buddy, and you walk right out there and you can heal people. And if you went out there and happened, and that happened, what would you be thinking about me? You'd think, whoa, dude, this guy's the real thing. And that's what happened with them. He said, go out and do miracles. Go out and cast out, go out and cast out demons in my name. And they went out and did that. And can you imagine the testimony meeting they had when they came back? They went, even the demons are subject to us. And they thought, this is the guy. And they were rightly excited by that. They've seen many people reorder their lives after coming to faith in Christ. They have been led to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament who will reestablish the kingdom of Israel. They've been led to believe he will be a king on a throne so much that they argue about who sits on the right hand and the left. And they're so excited. And now Jesus says, I'm going to leave. And they're going, well, hold on there. Because in their mind, him leaving has nothing to do with the plan. And so Peter is, excuse the term, freaking out. Lord, where are you going? I'll go anywhere with you. If you're going to go out there and die, I'll go out and die with you. I will not leave your side. He wanted to be with Jesus because his life had been revolving around it. Now Jesus says, I'm leaving and you can't follow me now. I think they missed that word. Jesus says, and Jesus says to the one most notable, vocal fellow among them, you're going to fail to stand up for me tonight Three times in a row. So what would the rest of the guys think? 
I mean, Peter is just going, I can't imagine life without you. And then he says, Peter, not only am I going to be gone, you're going to mess up. And the rest of the guys are going, what in the world? This, this whole thing's going topsy-turvy. Now, I think sometimes we have the same problem the disciples did, and that is this. We want Christ to be personally, visibly present for every challenge we face. And we struggle to do exactly what he's going to tell them to do, which is to believe in him. Peter did not want to be out of Christ's physical presence, but what does Christ say to him? How does Christ intend to bring him peace? Well, the first thing that we need to note, and we have an advantage here that Peter didn't have, and that is we need to take note of how Christ understands the weakness of Peter. Now, just before this happened, just before this interchange happened, Judas happened. And Jesus says, Judas... Whatever you're going to do, go out and do it quickly. And remember, and if you weren't here, I'll tell you, one of the big lessons of Judas is this. Judas is a man that God has not taken hold of. He is a normal, average, plain human being who has been around Christ, but God has not reached out and grabbed him. He's he's let him see the glory, but he has not proactively helped him to believe But we see something different with Peter. Look at verse 38 again. Will you lay down my life, your life for my sake? Jesus knows ahead of time what is going to happen with Peter. I've put together this story from all of the Gospels, and I'd like for you to follow it along here because I think it's very instructive. From Matthew, we start out. Then Jesus said to them, all of you, All of you will be made to stumble because of me tonight. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So it wasn't just Peter that he was was, uh, commending here or exhorting. But after I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. Now what does that mean? You know what it means? That when they fail, Jesus isn't going to say, get out of my sight, I never want to see you again. He knows they're going to fail. And he says, after you fail, I'm going to come back and we're going to go together over to Galilee. Now, I don't think they grasped this. I think they grasped that in what we would call John 21, (laughs) when Jesus is talking to Peter on the beach and he says, do you really love me more than these than feed my sheep? And there's this whole restoration thing and we'll look forward to studying that together. They didn't grasp it here, but he says, look, you're going to fail, but then after I'm raised, we're going to go together. I don't even think they understood the raised thing at this point. But Jesus knows they're going to fail. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. This is reminiscent of Job in the Old Testament when Satan came into the throne room of God and he says, let me have at Job and he'll curse you to your face. And Jesus says, Satan has asked for you that he might might really tear you apart. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. 
We talked about this some time back, about Jesus praying for us. And Jesus' prayers get answered. I have prayed that your faith will not fail. And when you have returned to me, do you understand? Before he even sins, he says, I know you're going to sin, and when you come back, here's what I want you to do. But he spoke more vehemently. Peter did. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. Now we'll see the story later on in Gethsemane. What happens when the soldiers come? How many of them run away? All of them. And one of them ran away naked because somebody got a hold of his clothes and he went, I'm out of here. Yeah, literally. But they all said, no, we're going to die with you. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow until you have denied me three times. One commentator named D.A. Carson said this, sadly, good intentions in a secure room after good food are far less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. At this point in his pilgrimage, Peter's intentions and self-assessment vastly outstrip his strength. That's true. What he's saying is, when you're sitting in church, you say, I will never deny Christ. And you go to the restaurant and somebody says, are you, you go to that Baptist church? (laughs) See, sitting here, we're all strong. That's what happened to Peter. But God knew. That's what I glory in. Christ knew that Peter would fail, but he didn't reject him. Now, he let Judas go. He didn't make Judas go. But as an unbelieving, unsaved person, Judas never came to faith, and God never reached out to pull him in. But with Peter... Christ is essentially saying, look, you are not only my child, you're one of my apostles, and I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to keep coming after you. In fact, it occurs to me that just the way Christ talked to him, and the fact that Christ did come back and sought him out after the resurrection, is part of that work that we call election. It's Christ not giving up on us, even when we give up on him. When we get to the part of the narrative that records Peter's denial of Christ, he will not be laughing. He will be broken. And I offer it this way, because some people are so foolish as to take this forgiveness of Christ as a license to sin. Oh, I know God doesn't want me to do fill in the blank. But you know what? He's going to forgive. That preacher told me on Sunday, God will forgive. Well, here's what I want to tell you about your sin. When Peter sinned, he wasn't laughing. Do you know that when we get there, it's going to say that Peter, after the third denial, it says that Jesus looked at him. How do you suppose Peter felt? Do you suppose Peter thought, oh yeah, I've sinned, no big deal. Listen, Christian, you need to take God's warning seriously because sin always has consequences. But we also need to glory in forgiveness. 
It's a marvelous thing that God can know about our failings ahead of time and still forgive us. Wow. Christ knew about Peter's weakness. In bringing peace to Peter, not only is he going to be knowing his weakness and be secure in his ministry to him, but he's going to offer some particular care for his soul. Look with me at chapter 14, verse 1. After this warning about the denying me, the very next thing he says is, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. There's a, there's a very clearly implied action that I want to challenge you toward when you are at a point of not having peace in your life. And the first thing is this. Take hold of yourself and calm down. Now, I'm starting to sound like every other self-help guy in the book. But you listen to this all the way till the end. The reason that this is an important command is because that's what Jesus said to do. He said, look, get a hold of your heart. Let not your heart be troubled. It's a command. Do you understand that? It's a command not to be troubled. And so what that tells me is it is possible to calm down as a Christian. Now, it's only possible in the Lord, and and hear me out all the rest of the way. The word heart that's used here is is the plain word for heart, cardia. We get cardiac from it and so on. But in the New Testament, it's always used of the inner man or the spiritual man. It's never used of the blood pump, if you will. And he's saying, listen, take a hold of yourself. It tells me that it's possible for the Christian to change the condition of his inner person. Listen to this from 1 Thessalonians. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. Here's Jesus saying, let not your heart be troubled. It's a command, which means it's possible because he is going to do it if we will step out in obedience. If God instructs us on something to do, his power makes the command impossible. One of the important ways he empowers his commands is with other truth. None of God's commands stand alone. There is no, and this one is is that way as well. It's not just let not your heart be troubled, close up the book and walk away, but it is the beginning point of taking control of your inner person in Christ. Every belief, attitude, or behavior which God tells us to adopt is interconnected with many other truths. And here, the path of calmness for the soul is faith in God and faith in Christ. This is written in an interesting form in the original language, and it could be taken either as two commands or two statements of fact. And it simply says, believe in God and believe in me. It seems, given Peter's state of mind, that the idea of a command is what's intended here. He says, believe in God and believe in me. The path to calmness for the soul is faith in God and faith in Christ. It's not faith. That's real popular these days in our spiritual, quote-unquote, country. You've got to believe. You have to have faith in what? Well, the best they can come up with is yourself. God says, no, that won't bring you any peace, but if you believe in me, you will have my peace. 
Jesus is about to give the disciples, in the next verse, an objective reason to trust in him. But while that is true, they should have learned by now that Jesus was dependable, trustworthy, and genuinely concerned about what was best for them. Think about it. When they had no food, what did Jesus do? Fed them. When they had no money for taxes, what did he do? He said, get that fish right there, there's some money. Here, go pay the taxes. When they needed truth, at one point, Peter said, who else are we going to go to? You have the words of life. He taught them God's truth. He enabled them to do miracles. He proved himself more powerful than anyone or anything. So why can't Peter fall back on the track record of Christ and say, you know what? If Christ says he's going away, it's going to be okay because whatever he says is okay. God wants us to remember the track record that he has in our lives. Peter has the same problem we do. He has a habit of focusing on the difficulty at hand, not on the Lord of the universe. You can either focus your heart on all of the power of God, or you can focus it on the temporary trial you are currently facing. And if you focus on the trial you're in, you will become anxious. If you focus on the Lord, you will become calm. And that's what he's telling Peter. He's saying, look, Peter, get a hold of yourself and believe in me. No matter how difficult your life looks at any given point, there needs to be a, a reference point in our mind, in our heart, which says God is in control. This is a difficulty, but God is in control. He, they're having this interchange, and when it comes to verse 1, it's like he says, believe, believe, believe in me. Look at how David put it. Hmm. Did I leave that out? There it is. Look at how David put this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed. David is really getting, taking poetic license with his writing. Do you understand what he's saying? He says, if I'm standing here and the next minute the earth is removed, I'm not going to fear. And though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. And then this little word, selah. Have you seen that in the book of Psalms? It literally means pause. It's a musical note. You know the book of Psalms was primarily a music book, right? A lyric book. And the names of the tunes are given at the top of some of the Psalms. And this one, in the middle of this Psalm, he, he says all this stuff and he says, pause it's a moment for reflection so let's read it again god is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble therefore we will not fear even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea though its waters roar and be troubled though the mountains shake with its swelling he says just stop and let that sink in is that what you think of when you face a difficulty? Yesterday, when that thing didn't go the way you wanted it to go, did you go, God is in control, it's going to be okay? 
when that person didn't show up at work and you had to work twice as hard. And they always do that on the opening day of fishing season. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sick today. Is God in control in your life or not? I believe the very first thing that Jesus is telling Peter is, Peter, you're talking to the God of the universe. And Peter doesn't get it. And he's not going to get it until the Holy Spirit comes into him on the day of Pentecost. And then later on, he's, then, later on, he's going to write some things that are going to give us an indication that he really does understand this. Peter has the same problem we do. We get all worried because we forget to see the God that's at work in our world. Now God is good and he doesn't even give Peter just that instruction, but he goes on to give a specific instruction, if you will, or, or a, a more specific reason not to be afraid. And that is the plan for Peter's future. Look at me with me at verse chapter 14. We'll start in verse 1 again. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, Peter, I'm going to tell you something you didn't know. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Now, obviously, we, those of us who have been around the Lord a long time have not only known this scripture, but we've sung the song, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. And we picture... <laughs> when you see Jerry Blankers this week, don't tell him he was a sermon illustration, okay? Because I don't know him. <laughs> Now that's where I want to live in heaven. The word mansion came into English from Latin, mansion. And by the way, those of you from liturgical churches might recognize the word manse applied to the house where the preacher lives. We call it a parsonage if it's owned by the church. They call it a manse. It comes from the same word. And all it means in Latin is a place to live. It doesn't mean a mansion. It just means a dwelling place. And so it came into English that way. But the the Greek word just means a dwelling place. And the emphasis is not on magnificent in the original word. The emphasis is on permanence. Permanence. And here, Jesus expands that to um, uh, to, first of all, talk about a family place. I've got to go back. I'm, I gotta, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited I'm all out of whack here. Jesus says, look, Peter, I have a plan for your future. I don't know if you ever sat down to define anxiety, but here's the definition as I would understand it. Anxiety is fear of the future. Anxiety is fear of the future. Now, sometimes that fear has to do with the past. You know, like I robbed a bank and I'm afraid I will get arrested. So I understand that the past plays a part in the future, but anxiety is always a fear of the future. And it's always based on the worst case scenario. We look forward and go, wow, what's the worst thing that could happen? I bet that's going to happen. 
we always imagine these terrible things. And Jesus says, look, you want to not be anxious? Here's the deal. I'm going to tell you how to not be anxious about your future. Peter could not imagine a day without Christ personally present. Jesus said, I'm going to give you a reason not to be afraid of the future. And the first part of that reason is this. I'm not just leaving. See, Peter is looking at Christ, and Christ says, I have to go away, you can't come with me. And Peter thinks, you're leaving me. He doesn't see the bigger picture. We have the opportunity to see the bigger picture and to understand that Peter... If Peter had really understood that Jesus was getting ready to go die for his sins and be resurrected so he could have a new life, that Peter would have went, go, go, go. But he doesn't grasp that. Do you ever miss what God is doing in your life? I would submit to you that you don't know what you don't know. I mean that. You look around and go, why doesn't God do this? That's what Peter did. And the truth is, Peter didn't understand what was going to happen in a few hours. And that's why Jesus says, look, Peter, believe in me. I'm at work here. I'm not just leaving. I'm going out to do something. And we'll look more at that next week. Verse 33 of chapter 13 says, you will seek me and you cannot come. He says, I've got something to do here. But then he also says, now, Peter, I'm not just leaving you. I have something to do. And Peter, you're going to have a place in heaven. And that's what we were talking about a minute ago before I interrupted myself. He says, first of all, it is a family home. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. I think the more correct imagination of heaven among this text would be this. The giant, the biggest mansion you can imagine, maybe what we call the, new, he- the uh, new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. And God has the master suite, and we are all in bedrooms. We all have a dwelling place in his house. But the clear intent here, no matter what the physical presence is like, the clear intent is that it's a family home. The Father's house is clearly a synonym for heaven. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said this, Our Father who art in heaven. Now we understand that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. Be careful when you say that, Christian. He is not in everything. That's animism. He is not everything, but he is everywhere present. And yet God also seems to tell us in the Scripture that there is a localizing of his presence in a place called heaven. Sometimes we even think of it this way, the third heaven, the, 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 the heaven of heavens, is the presence of God in some manifest way. Now, do I understand that exactly? If I did, I could write a book. God wrote one, we'll just have to be happy with that one. The presence of God is heaven. God purposefully uses many different names for people, places, and things in Scripture, including heaven. Here, he doesn't say heaven, and elsewhere he talks about the kingdom, and sometimes that's a reference to heaven. Here, he talks about the Father's house. So the intent is, Peter, there's, gonna, there's a family home. I'm not just going away, I'm going to the Father's home where I have a room 
that I will prepare for you. I'm not just going to evaporate up to the sky. I'm going to go to the place that says Dave Lunsford's home, whatever it is. It's not just a family home, it's a permanent home. That's the other key idea here in this word dwelling place. Um, it, it literally means some place where you stay or where you abide. Um, and here is something that I think helps us understand it. 2 Corinthians 5.1 says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with, hev- with hands, eternal in the heavens. And we understand that the word tent or tabernacle or a temporary dwelling is the word in the New Testament. is talking about this body right here. Someday I'll be laid out but I will be in heaven. My body will be laid out, but I will be in heaven in a permanent dwelling. This one is a temporary dwelling. God says there is a permanent one in heaven. Peter himself expresses this later in the book of 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. An incorruptible inheritance. A couple of years ago, I was excited at what my house was worth. I'm still excited at what it's worth. I'm just not as excited as I was a couple of years ago. You understand what I'm saying? At the height of the market, and, and the, the, my, a real estate friend said, oh, it's probably worth this much, and he was probably right. Not anymore. But you know what? Your home in the heavens is permanent, doesn't go away. It can't be corrupted, which literally means it can't decay. It's not defiled by sin. It won't just fade away. You know, my house, I have to constantly maintain it. The one in heaven, no maintenance. No Home Depot in heaven. And it's reserved for you. It's your name on the door. Now, the, the idea is not so that you can, how do I put this? It's not like, look at my house. It's like, I have a permanent place. There's a place waiting for me. I don't have to knock on the door of heaven and go, is there any, do you have a reservation for Lunsford? You ever go to a hotel and they go, oh, I'm sorry, we're all full. Yeah, but I had a reservation. That won't happen in heaven. Either you've got the reservation or you don't, and you can make sure of it now. In 1 John chapter 5, I believe it's verse 14, he says, these things are written so that you might know that you have eternal life. In fact, I think that's why Jesus is talking to Peter. He says, Peter, don't get all upset. I'm going to make a place for you in heaven. It's going to have your name on it. It's going to be your permanent dwelling place. The third thing that Jesus says about Peter's future is this, and he says, we'll be together for all of eternity. From, my, from listening to the, to the questions that Christians ask and discussions that I've had with them, I think there's a lot of Christians that maybe have a hard time sometimes getting really excited about heaven. You know it's better than going to hell. And you know your long-lost relative is going to be there. 
you know, but you kind of struggle with it. I think Jesus gives us a little picture here that maybe it'll help you. I don't know. But Peter and Jesus were like that on earth. In fact, Peter, James, and John, the three of them and Jesus were tight. They were buds. They were friends above what the other disciples were. At the end of the first sermon that Peter heard Jesus preach, okay, we're not going to take time to look at the scripture, but, but Jesus is there and there's this whole crowd of people and so he gets in Peter's boat. And he goes off the shore, and he's teaching this crowd on the shore. And at the end of it, he says, Peter, why don't you put your net down right there and catch some fish? And what did Peter say? He said, we've been fishing all night, Lord. Now, I'm not a fisherman. I don't even play one. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure you got to go fishing early when it's darker. The darker, the better. When it gets light, I guess the fish go to sleep, or they go out to have a party, or whatever they do. And so this is the middle of the day, and and Peter says, there weren't fish here last night. He's essentially saying, there won't be fish here now. Jesus says, why don't you give it a try right there? And he throws the net down, and what happens? There's so many fish that the net breaks, and Peter goes, wow, that's the coolest thing. And immediately he thought, man, I like this guy. My dad goes fishing with people, and it's the opposite. They don't catch nothing, you know. But he went, and they, they caught all these fish. And Peter's so excited. And then not long after that, they go to Peter's mother-in-law's house. And the mother-in-law is sick, and Jesus goes in and heals her. And Peter goes, Lord, was that the right thing? Are you sure about that? <laughs> no. He was happy because his wife was happy, wasn't he? Yes. <laughs> Forgive me, Lord. Um, Peter walked on water. Jesus said, you want to walk on water? Come on. You know? And on and on, all of this stuff. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to leave, he goes, don't leave. Man, we are having the greatest time of my life. Now think about friendship like that. And then Jesus says, Peter, we're going to be together for eternity. Peter goes, yes. I've had some good friends in my life, some fun friends. A couple, you know, a month ago, whenever it was now, three weeks ago, I bought my car from Keith Cox. Has the Volkswagen, the used Volkswagen place, and he just put some special stuff in the gas tank, and my car got real big from what it used to be a Volkswagen, you know. <laughs> but I met Keith Cox at Camp Gilead when we were both, I was in fifth grade and he was in sixth grade, and, and he we hung out together, and we played together at camp every year for several years, and I loved being with Keith Cox. He was just cool, and he was fun. I think we were both nerds. I think that was really the bond that we had. <laughs> now we're both cool, but uh, <laughs> I love Keith Cox, and I love doing business with him. When I say, man, I'm going to spend eternity with Keith Cox, I can get excited about that. Um... I've had other good friends throughout my life, and I have some good friends now. People that I respected, people that that I thought I admired, and I thought, what a great guy, what a great gal. I don't know how you think about Christ, but that kind of thinking needs to be applied to him. I mean, think about it. This guy went to the cross for you. 
This guy has heard your confession every day. And he never casts you out. This guy has enabled you to be an Awana leader and lead some kid to the Lord or teach him the gospel. This guy has helped you to be a parent or on and on and on. And that's the guy you get to spend eternity with. I don't know about you, but I can get excited about that. And Peter said, uh, Jesus says, Peter, we're going to be together for eternity. And, and that's part of how he's saying, look, Peter, calm yourself. Yeah, there's going to be some difficulty now, Peter. In fact, you don't know it, Peter, but in just a few months, you're going to be waist deep in alligators with all of these Pharisees and these folks that are going to be opposed to you. But we're going to be together for eternity. And finally, what's the encouragement that he gives him for his present day? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place. And if I go and prepare a place, I will, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you there, there you may be also. What's Peter's, what's God's encouragement to Peter for his present day? The encouragement is this. Think about Heaven. He says, Peter, don't get all wound up on the trouble that's here right now. Think about heaven. Now, I understand that some folks criticize Christianity. They refer to it as a pie-in-the-sky religion. Pie-in-the-sky sometime, by and by. You know, it's way out there and there's no help for today. I beg to differ. I would say that focusing on heaven helps me today. Listen to what... Paul wrote in Colossians, if you were raised with Christ, and that's a reference to your salvation, your death, burial, and resurrection of our soul, Romans chapter 6, then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're already with Christ in heaven. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your mind on things above. You ever daydream about vacation? You're at work, and it's a little grindish. Things aren't too fun, or it's a little boring. You ever think, boy, sure it would be nice to be on a cruise. And of course, now you don't have to daydream. You can go click, 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 click. And you're looking at the Holland America Line's uh, Lady of the Sea or whatever it is, you know. And you're looking, oh boy, that'd be great. And you look at your checkbook and you look at your days off and you think, oh, could we make that happen? And that, you know. And then your boss comes by and you hit that special key that puts work back up on the screen, you know. <laughs> Never daydream about vacation. Maybe a daydream about a day off. You know, you're slugging it out in the middle of the week. Hear this on the radio. Well, it's Wednesday. It's almost the weekend. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Work is supposed to be a grind because of the curse of sin. That's not an accident. You will never get rid of the grind completely. In Christ, there's meaning to all kinds of things and not just wonderful things. But it's easy to be in kind of in the grind of whatever it is and to imagine something fun. That's what Jesus says, Peter, think about heaven. 
Do you ever think about heaven? Do you ever stop and go, man, someday I'm going to be face to face with Jesus forever. See, that's what God seems to commend to us throughout the New Testament. And there's a host of commands that are attached to it. And one of them is, you better get pure. As in, wow, I'm going to see Jesus. Yesterday, uh, some folks dropped by the house and I was showing them inside. And I said, don't tell my wife you were here because she didn't clean it up before I brought you inside. You see, Jesus says, you better clean it up. You better clean it up, Christian, because we're going to be face to face. But then he also says, we're going to be face to face. And that's what he's saying to Peter here. Jesus, I think, is encouraging the apostles to dream about heaven, especially when the going gets tough. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Really? Or is that the is that the one you're building? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. <sighs> my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's golden shore, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Our problem is we're just too darn focused on our street of dreams, not enough on God's street of dreams. Remember this story from Seattle, or actually the east side, I think, or the northeast side? Um, street of dreams houses. Every year they build a whole street of houses that are that make Jerry Byers envious, or Jerry, whatever his name is, Blankers, make him envious. And these incredible dream homes. And this week, somebody, this year, somebody came and set a bunch of them on fire. And that's the problem with a home down here. It's susceptible to fire, to moth, to leaks in the roof. Jesus said, think about your home in heaven. Peter, that's where you're going. That's your future. That's reality. This is not reality. This is temporary. What's your hope fixed on today, friend? I hope your hope is fixed on a permanent place in the Father's house. Heavenly Father, oh, we're, we're so excited to go to your house. Come to your house for Thanksgiving. Come to your house for the rest of our eternal lives. Thank you for helping us to understand some of the glories of heaven. Forgive us for focusing on the, the gold of the streets or the size of the house. Father, build in us a desire to be with Jesus. Help us to see what a great friend he has been. Help us to recognize the wonder of spending eternity with him. Help us to calm our hearts by focusing on him and our future. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life. 
the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's Word will give you hope for life.